there, so yeah, there are 73 Southern resident orcas, like Elena said. And when we started, there was 78. And when Elena started one species, there were 84. So we've seen, you know, it spiraling down and sometimes going up, it's really touch and go with these births and births and deaths. Welcome to the Sierra Youth Podcast, a place where we hold conversations about creating a healthy planet and healthy communities. We're here to learn about all the things related to environmental justice, mainly from the perspective of youth. Our hosts today are Brenna, Michaela, Jessica, Emily, and me, Jackie, and I'll be guiding everyone through this conversation. And I'm really, really stoked for today's episode. Um, we'll be speaking with a few very special guests, Gloria Pancrezi and Elena Jean. They are two of the filmmakers behind the newly premiered documentary, Kill Extinction. The doc has been hitting the big screen across Canada and the USA and has already had a ton of success. I saw that you guys were a Jackson Wild film festival finalist, an official selection at the Vancouver International Film Festival, and also of the Mill Valley Film Festival. So huge congrats there. Uh, this film is all about orcas, specifically the southern resident killer whales, who are most often found swimming in the waters of the Pacific Northwest. And here to speak a little bit more about these majestic creatures are Elena and Gloria. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining today. Hi, we're so happy to be here. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, well, as I said, first and foremost, congratulations. I know you've both been on a whirlwind tour over the past few weeks, and we're super excited to hear about it. But before we dive in, I was hoping you could tell me a bit about yourselves and why you love orcas and what motivated you to cover this topic. So maybe, Elena, you could go first. Sure, we'd love to. Um, yeah, it has been an absolute whirlwind few weeks on festival tour. But even before that, you know, working on this film has been such a whirlwind and not something that I could have predicted I'd be doing five years ago. Um, it was four years ago that I met Gloria out on the West Coast, and she was working for an organization called CETUS, and they track the southern resident killer whales, and they also help prevent um, incidents with boats uh, and collect a lot of data, important data for conservation. And I was working on this organization that I had built called One Species. And it was an organization based around endangered species. And I was donating part of the pro profits from basically creating clothing collections around specific endangered species to those organizations. So we had manatees, we had spider monkeys, and then we had the southern resident killer whales at the time. And so I had met her because I was creating some content to um, for that for that brand and to spread the message. And that's when I met her out on the water. And I ultimately stopped working on the brand because at the end of the day, it was pretty conflicting creating clothing. Um, and to try and find a way to do that properly and sustainably was an incredible challenge. And I found myself much more compelled by the media and the story compelling storytelling component, which, uh, of course, as you guys know, is, is so integral to shifting the way that we interact with the world. You know, storytelling is very powerful and documentary films are very powerful. So when Gloria approached me with the idea for this film, I was uh, on board and we dove in head first, having little to no formal filmmaking experience, but we kind of figured it out along the way. And here we are today. Wow, that's amazing. It's so cool that you've been working on this for so long and it must be so special to see it come to fruition. Um, Gloria, did you want to add a little bit to that? I'm curious to hear your background as well. Yeah, I always love hearing the story of like how we came together and started working on this because it felt very 
I just love it. We were both, you know, chasing our passions and chasing what we believed in. And I'm so grateful that we met and what we've been able to create together. And for me, it started ever since I was a kid. I've always loved orcas ever since I watched Free Willy when I was like five years old or something like that. And then I would rewatch it every single day. So, <laughs> um, and just ever since I was a kid, I just wanted to work with orcas and I want to be a marine biologist, but then I kind of struggled with being a scientist and it wasn't my strongest skill, but I love telling stories. And so that's how I wanted to help them. And when I found out they were facing extinction, I was studying journalism at the time, written journalism specifically. And I didn't want to just write a long piece about them. I wanted to do something bigger with a longer term, long-term impact to it. And for me, that was a documentary. And so that's how it all stemmed. I just know films like Blackfish, especially Blackfish at the time is what inspired me because I saw the impact that it had. And I was just like, okay, let's go, let's go make a film without necessarily knowing how to make one. <laughs> and uh, a lot of grit, a lot of hard work, a lot of trials and errors got us here. And it's been a wild journey. Wow. I love that. You're like, what should we do? Make a film. Let's do it. We'll figure it out. I think that's a really cool attitude. And I really love that you kind of are approaching it from this other angle. Cause I know I've had that experience too, where I really care about the environment and I want to participate in conservation. I want to do all these things, but I don't necessarily have the science <laughs> skills to do it. And it's just good for everyone to know that there's so many different ways for you to participate in that kind of thing. But, um, Gloria, I actually read a quote from you that I really loved, and it said that the Southern residents have no home. They are each other's home. They work together through adversity and have learned to coexist. And I was hoping you could speak a bit more to that because I think it's really beautiful. Yes, I would love to. I will start by saying that I borrowed that quote from Ken Balcom, the leading scientist on these orcas. He's studied them for 40-ish years, something like that. And, um, and he said that once and it resonated so deeply because something that calls me to these orcas and I think can call anyone to want try and protect them is their connection to one another that is so similar to ours, the way they love each other, the way they are a family. And I feel like sometimes we as humans struggle to see that in animals. We feel like we might be the only ones to feel so deeply and care for each other so deeply and stand with each other through thick and thin, but these orcas do that. And, you know, when we think of them starving and not doing well, they don't have a home to return to. And that can feel kind of like this frightening thought, but they have each other. And I find that just so beautiful to know that, yeah, that's, that's how they got through the beautiful moments and the sad moments. And I know that's how we have to look at all of these big things we're facing. We have to work together like the orcas and they're teaching us so much. And I love them a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. I really love that. Um, on that note, just for our listeners who are maybe less up to date with the state of the Southern residents, could you guys give us a little bit of a background on the population, what, where it's at, what's happening? Yeah. Uh, currently, there are uh, 73 individuals left, so they are critically endangered. You know, there's only, and we explore this a, very, a, a little bit in the film as well, but there's a, only a few um, that are actually breeding. Um, but Gloria could probably give you some background on the number of births and deaths uh, more recently, um, but certainly things are in a very dire situation for them right now. and 
what we set out to do with the film was to try and uncover and really understand why, because it is so multifaceted, you know, what's leading, what's causing their endangerment. And so we wanted to try and find out what are the, what are kind of the key factors that are driving their, um, driving their endangerment and how we could confront them and uh, work to reduce or stop them entirely. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll add to that of um, there. So yeah, there are 73 Southern resident orcas, like Elena said. And when we started, there was 78. And when Elena started one species, there were 84. So we've seen, you know, it spiraling down and sometimes going up, it's really touch and go with these births and births and deaths. And what's what we've seen is, you know, they're called Southern resident orcas because they used to be in these waters in the Salish Sea which is the body of water around Seattle, Vancouver, Vancouver Island. They used to be there every day in the summer months. You know, I mentioned Ken Balcom, who's a scientist who studied these orcas. He used to see the whales pass by his house every single day. And because mostly the lack of salmon, but a myriad of other issues as well, they're not here anymore. So that's, you know, a big telling sign of, of what's happening in the ecosystem but also that means that when they do come back, we get all this data and suddenly we see who is doing well, who isn't doing well, who is pregnant, who has passed away, all of that. So this fall in September, they were there every day, um, almost every day. I think it's, there must have been finding some salmon then because that's why they were here. And we had news that one more orca had passed away, L47 Marina, if I'm not mistaken. She was a matriarch. So whenever we lose a matriarch, it's very scary because they know where the salmon runs are. They teach the young everything. So it, it's a big loss whenever we lose a grandmother. And then a two-year-old orca was seen with her condition worsening. She's looking a little bit thin. She doesn't have, it's nothing critical just yet, but obviously it's quite scary to see that. And then there were three pregnancies, which is really, really exciting. And now just the one thing to keep in mind is that there's a 50-50 chance when an orca is born that they'll pass away in the first year of their life. And also there are a lot of neonates born and a lot of pregnancies lost because of the lack of food and because of the amount of toxins in the water. So yeah, it's um, it's hopeful and you got to hold on to that hope, but you also got to fight really hard to make sure that these pregnancies make it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really hard to hear that kind of news, even though we are trying to maintain hope, especially I know a few years ago when that mother was carrying her calf for however many, I think it was months. And I know that really blew up in the news. And I, it really speaks to like how deeply the orcas care for each other, like you were talking about earlier. And it's, it's really beautiful, but also really heart wrenching. But um, on that note, I'd really like to kind of dive into a little bit more about the orcas and the environment and how those two are connected, particularly in reference to climate change. And I'm wondering if either of you could speak to how orcas contribute to healthy ecosystems and kind of their role as an indicator species. That's an amazing question. I think, um, you know, the orcas are so, were, they're so amazing in so many different ways, but from uh, an ecological, from kind of a scientific standpoint, you know, they're an apex predator. So they are indicative of the greater health of the ecosystem. Because if we just think about the way that an ecosystem functions, you know, you have your base level species like plankton, which feed herring, and then, you know, herring feed whales and salmon. And 
and then orcas eat salmon. And so, you know, it's kind of this stacking effect. So whenever you have something happening in an ecosystem that affects the bottom levels or wherever within the trophic system, typically you can, um, you can see within, you can see by how the health of the ecosystem through the apex predators. So, um, yeah, and these orcas are particularly interesting because they are resident. So they live within, you know, this, they live very in very close contact to people essentially, right? Because we're along the coast. And so they've inhabited the coast for thousands and thousands of years. And we've lived alongside them. People have lived alongside them for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and so now as the coast has dramatically changed over the last hundred you know, 200 years with colonization, industrialization, you know, we're really, we're seeing their, you know, the, the most severe effects on, on these orcas. Um, yeah, Gloria, you could probably speak a little more to that as well. Yeah. We started out just, especially myself, just looking at the orcas and Elena was the one that really was like, there's something bigger here. There's a bigger picture. There's a bigger story. And that's one of the many reasons why I'm so happy that we met and we created this film together because it is so much more than these orcas. And I'm so glad that we, we took that approach of looking at more than just what's happening to the orcas and seeing what is that, what is that saying about the entire ecosystem? What is that saying about us as humans, not just on this coast, but around the planet, because what's happening to these orcas connects us all around the globe. So that's something that's quite interesting, just, you know, on the fact that the climate crisis is affecting these orcas. So obviously that's, you know, an issue around the world. I know, I know you wanted to talk specifically about the climate crisis as well. And just to what Gloria was saying, you know, that is such a ubiquitous issue around the globe. And I think especially we're starting to see the more severe effects um, n noticeably and something that we spent some time looking at a lot of time looking at in you know our process of trying to understand what was causing their endangerment and how we could protect them was salmon declines and there's been a lot of research that has gone into looking at you know what is causing these salmon declines and there's so many different factors and we look at a bunch of them in the film but one of them is the climate crisis and the warming temperatures because you know salmon are a temperature sensitive species and there are so many temperature sensitive species, but, you know, with salmon being so important to the greater ecosystem, you know, living in rivers and, and the ocean, you know, they support so much life across the coast. Um, it's really, the climate crisis is really concerning for salmon populations. And so, you know, the, the orcas, the orcas, the temperature doesn't, I don't know that there's been any research that's shown that, you know, these slight temperature changes are affecting orcas directly just within, you know, with regards to ocean temperature, but it's that downwind, that downfall effect, you know, how everything is interconnected, you know, so if temperatures affecting salmon, we're seeing salmon declines, um, you know, we're going to see issues across the entire ecosystem. So it's just one example of so, so, so many, um, you know, connections and the impact of those connections when one chain kind of uh, breaks, you know, or one link, you know, breaks that the entire system is, is, is broken or affected. Yeah. And even, you know, you were saying that, and it's making me think of the trans mountain pipeline expansion, which is a big issue we go to in the film. And it's, um, it's a big issue that the orcas are facing, the salmon are facing, and that's directly connected to the climate crisis, right? And it's affecting the orcas in the sense of potential of oil spills, 
like we've seen, you know, this week with the cargo ship that um, dropped cargoes into the ocean and created this, this fire and this really, really toxic chemicals into the water. I mean, that's what we're about to increase. Not exactly that, but we're increasing these really large vessels into this water and the noise disturbance. And then this pipeline is being built through rivers with salmon. So again, it's all connected and it's really so interesting to see just how hyper-connected this all is with the climate crisis, the orcas, the salmon ourselves, especially that's something I think people, a lot of people, until it affects them, they might not want to take action. So I really do hope that this film helps people see their role and their connection with it. And then it makes them want to go and take action. Yeah, absolutely. I think even just hearing you speak about all of those issues and emphasize that nothing happens in a vacuum, you know, we could have a whole episode on salmon and and at the end of the day, we would still be talking about orcas, like everything's interconnected. And the one word that keeps coming into my mind when I think about that is co-extinction, which is obviously the title of your documentary. And I'd love if you could kind of define that for our listeners. And obviously you've already spoke to it a little bit, but I just love that term and I'd, I'd like to hear more about it and how it came about. Yeah, that's, um, that's a fun one for us because when we were trying to think of the name of the film, and this was years ago, before we had really established even what the film was going to be about. Um, and it's always hard, you know, with a documentary as well, you kind of go in with this investigative to some degree or to a large degree with an investigative approach. And you have to go out and film and ask a lot of questions before you can really pour, pull the story together. But we did know that this was going to be a story about interconnectedness and all the different factors affecting New Yorkers and how they are all connected. Um, and so we were trying to think of a name for that, but initially the name was 78 because there was 78 orcas at that time. Um, but then we were trying to think of this more interconnected name and we were like, Coextinction. <laughs> like making up these words. And I was like, oh, co what about coextinction? And it turns out it's a real term. And, you know, from a science background myself, I had never actually come upon it, but it's not a term that's that I heard often used, but I feel like it should be what we use instead of extinction. It's always co-extinction because to what you said, you know, it's like nothing happens in a vacuum. Extinction doesn't happen in isolation. It's always co-extinction. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, that was cool for us when we found the definition. The definition is specifically, if you're to look, up, look it up, I think it's um, the decline or disappearance of a species due to the decline or disappearance of other species that depend on it. So, and you know, that's, that's how, that's how life works on planet earth. That's, that's how life works in, in the universe. Everything is dependent on each other, you know? So, um, it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of a breakthrough moment when we like had that title and, and we still really love it. We've kind of gotten a little bit of feedback, but it, it's, it's can be quite, um, I don't know. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this, but it's, you know, it's some people see it as it's kind of it's kind of negative. But also, I think within one word, it encapsulates so much of what we're looking at in the film. And of course, the opposite of coextinction is coexistence. So, you know, how do we work towards coexistence is the question that we want people to be asking. Wow. I love that. Um I think that kind of follows up on what Gloria was saying earlier. Like a lot of the time people don't really care until it affects them, which is really sad. And there's all these things that do exist that you don't see in your day-to-day -day life because we're all so disconnected from the natural world. And I kind of love, love the term co-extinction because maybe it reframes, you know, the climate crisis in that sense too. Like 
people are dying, cultures are dying, animals and a ton of different species are dying and, and it is co-extinction and humans are involved in that too. And so that's kind of how I think about it at least. And I really appreciate that term. Um, another topic that is really, really important and that you explore a lot in this film is the significance of orcas within indigenous cultures. And I'm just curious what you guys have come to learn about the importance of orcas to indigenous communities and and what we can learn and implement from a lifetime of knowledge uh, there. What I find is we met with many different indigenous nations, some of which aren't even in the film, and, and saw all the ways they were connected, not just with the orca, but the salmon. And, you know, that's something that's just like, it's a part of who they are in a way that like, I can't understand. And that is just so heartbreaking to know that, you know, the loss of salmon is the loss of who they are. I, um, I was with, uh, Jay Julius from the Lummi nation yesterday and we were speaking about this and it was just like, once you know that again, it's just that, that other level of co-extinction and it's a very powerful thing. And what it makes me think of is just how the government is just not doing what it should be doing to not just protect the salmon, but the people. And you have to keep that connection in the front of your mind when you're protecting an ecosystem or an animal, you can't just, you know, protect the animal. You have to look at the indigenous people fighting to protect it and why they are protecting it and how they're protecting it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so to extend on that. Exactly. There's so much that we can learn from these communities that have spent, you know, thousands and thousands of years living alongside these species. And uh, that's why it's particularly important to listen and respect what they have to say with regards to kind of that spiritual, that deeper connection, the one that is so difficult to put into words, you know, with the English language. Um, we, ha we are disconnected, generally speaking, you know, in Western societies from nature, from other species, other life, and even each other and ourselves, um, because we, because of this incredible, you know, history of colonialization and separation that we've been experiencing for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so I think, you know, that kind of reconnection in that, in that deeper level, that, that spiritual front is an important step forward. And it's obviously very difficult, but um, when you are in this place of greater disconnection, just because of the culture or the lack of culture that you are currently within, but I think that, you know, that's a, that's a beautiful thing to be listening and looking at what, what is that exploring that culture and being curious about it, that, that connection, um, because there's so much, so much that we can learn there that really then helps enable us work towards a more, a future with more coexistence you know, a big kind of awakening for me in working on this film uh, and this project was kind of the, I leaned more into that, you know, again, coming from a scientific background and, and I think, you know, Western society is very science oriented and driven, but that kind of intangible um, spiritual connection is very important and powerful as well. The stories that we tell about the meaning behind you know, our connection to nature and our connection to these species. Um, 
So, so much to say on that. It's a fascinating topic. And we're, we were really, really, really lucky to be able to go in and spend some time with these different nations and tribes in um, both the States and Canada and, and learn from them. Yeah, I'm really excited to see the film um, for that perspective specifically. I think it's really amazing that you guys are kind of breaking the mold of this typical like nature documentary that's very science-based and um, introducing all of these complexities that are so important to the story of orcas and of people. Um, so I, I really appreciate that and I'm excited to learn more about it. Um, on that note, I'm really curious. Um, you've obviously had a lot of exposure to a lot of different people in a lot of different circumstances. Obviously there's this, um, like border that orcas don't recognize <laughs> that are governing their existence right now. Um, in terms of the difference between the USA and the state or sorry, and Canada. And I'm, I'm curious how the social and political circumstances have evolved over the duration of this film and how they've changed in the last few years as we've seen the population declining. I mean, I think it's a just acknowledging that there is this border and that it is this, it, to some degree, it's a barrier to progress uh, because there's all of these, you know, agreements that need to be formed from a political and economic standpoint when it comes to conservation of a species like the orca and salmon and so forth. And so, you know, we have um, treaties that have been formed in the Pacific salmon uh, what is it? What is the name for it again? But there's, you know, every year when it comes to fishing, for example, there's this, there's this massive evolving agreement that is re requires a lot of money and time and meetings and, and whatnot that have to do with, you know, salmon take and allowances and stuff for fishing. Um, but, you know, of course in Canada, we've got fish farms in the States, there aren't fish farms, uh, in the States, there was, you know, a, um, a multi-billion dollar investment to orca, uh, conservation in Canada. We didn't see that, but um, we've seen different things in Canada In Canada. There's um, it's, I believe it's one way or the other is there's a 400 meter distance uh, from the orcas when you're watching, when you're watching them. And then in the States, it becomes a kilometer or maybe actually reversed. I'm forgetting right now, but um, you know, so there's all of these different, these differences uh, across, across the border. And that of course makes it challenging, but uh, when it comes to conservation, but I think what we did see for sure is that, you know, pressure even from outside of Canada and the states, political pressure still has an, has an effect. Um, so, for example, we look at the issue of the Snake River dams, which are blocking massive amounts of uh, salmon habitat, pristine salmon habitat, um, which, of course, affect salmon populations. You know, multi-millions uh, of salmon are not getting out into the ocean, are not able to go up and breed and spawn. Um, and so the Snake River dams are an issue that is largely focused, a focus in Washington as well as Idaho and a bit in Oregon, but it's the state's issue. But, um, you know, if you have thousands of people calling in to the governor's office from around the world, that pressure still counts, I think, you know. So um, there are things that can be done, even if you live in Australia or England. Um, I think, you know, people's, people's voice is very powerful. But uh, when it comes to conservation, again, I think... Um, you know, looking at if you're wanting to get involved in actions, looking at like where you might be most useful, if there's a more localized approach that you can take, um, then that's that's probably the most powerful one that you can take. You know, we look at the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project. That's a big Canadian issue. But we look at the Snake River Dams. That's a big American issue. Whale watching, both sides. Um, fish farms, Canadian. So um, it really depends. We've seen both Canada and the U.S. come together to protect the orcas, and we've also seen 
how very last minute band-aid solutions taken from both and very like Elena said, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of money spent on studies where we already know the answers. So there's a lot of similarities in that. And it's, uh, it's tricky trying to a species that is in two countries and seeing how two different, and especially as us being Canadian, you know, there's some things that are harder for us to, to take action on like the dams when, you know, again, you can call and, and email and do a lot of things from Canada to put pressure on, but during the pandemic, we couldn't go there. Um, this was the first time in two years we were able to go back to the States. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting part of the story. Yeah. It's definitely interesting and so complicated and, (laughs) uh, annoying, but, um, I'm curious, uh, before I kind of open it up, I know the team probably has a lot of questions for you and you've been so knowledgeable and amazing and I'm excited to hear what they have to say too. Um, but I'd love if you could just, uh, summarize if possible, what you think the governments that are in charge of these species need to be doing right now. I mean, we've got very simple answers for that. And if you watch the film, um, you will understand why. But in Canada, we need to get rid of the fish farms in the, and we need to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project from completion and delivery of, you know, this oil overseas and around the world. Um, we need to breach the four lower Snake River dams. There are so many other actions that can be taken um, from a broader sense. Allyship uh, is a big thing, a big action that can be taken as well as choosing not to eat salmon is another broader, you know, action that can be taken globally. So from a political stance, you know, the fish farms, the Trans Mountain Pipeline and, and the four lower Snake River dams are, are the pressure points for yeah. political action. And I'll just add to that of, you know, taking real climate action and overall, which are completely connected to all of these issues that Alana just brought up in the climate crisis one listen to indigenous people and don't build things on their land if they're saying no and don't arrest them on their land if they're fighting it. Um, We've seen so much injustice on that and it is so messed up beyond measures. And the Canadian government, I think a lot of people, you know, see the Canadian government, they're like, oh, it's such a good government. Y'all are doing so good up north. We're like, no, it's, it's just as bad. There's just maybe like, I don't know why, but people think that Canada is so much better. Just, yeah, listen to indigenous peoples and to what they want to happen on their land. It's just as simple as that. Oh, I absolutely relate to that. And beyond that, you so rarely see it covered in the in the mainstream media, at least. I know all of us have been pretty invested in Fairy Creek, for instance, and a few of our team members went out there and it's been honestly deplorable what's happening at Perry Creek. So I'm absolutely with you that we should be listening to indigenous peoples and respecting them, which you would think would come with the politeness thing in for Canadians, but apparently not. <laughs> or the word reconciliation we like to throw around. Oh yes, you know, that like, word. Then actually bring it into the actions and yeah, anyways. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, I think that's very important. And on that note, I would like to open it up to the rest of the team just because I want to make sure everyone has time to get whatever questions they have out. So maybe I'll pass it off to Brenna first and see what she has to say. Okay, so I don't even know if this is a question. I think I have a few things to say. But number one, um, the co-extinction title, I, I really like it and I think it's really powerful. I think we know... 
um, in previous conversations that sometimes the light fluffiness just tends to not really get people to do something that gets them out of bed or to get them to change their behavior in a way that's really impactful. And I think that without like scaring people and throwing us down like this negative spiral of doom and gloom, it's like we are interconnected. When they go, we go. When we impact species and our ecosystems, we're directly impacted. Um, And I think that that really does come across. So I love the name. What I struggle with or like what I'm so curious about is we do know that everything is interconnected and what are the root issues of that disconnection and what role do cultures and different values and different assumptions and different ways of knowing, like how does that all feed into this disconnection? And that's probably like a really broad question, but I think in terms of maybe like what you've learned doing this documentary and your work with um, like orca whales in general, like what are some of those like root issues that you've seen humans do that really negatively impact orca whales and their ecosystems and kind of like all of the living creatures in that web of life? I think uh, something that I'm really proud of that we worked hard to do in the film was to contextualize this idea of interconnectedness, to give a powerful example. And, you know, salmon was kind of one of our main focus points for that. And we looked at, you know, traditionally the indigenous views and relationship with salmon on the coast versus the Western and colonial, you know, view of salmon. And the big, big difference from a mindset perspective is nature commoditized. You know, nature is not a commodity. We are, you know, everything we are living, breathing beings, just as the salmon are. And I think, you know, at the root of so many issues and disconnect is this idea of commoditization of nature. And we see it with orcas as well. And, you know, the, the blackfish story with orcas being, you know, taken to sea world and aquariums around the world and people paying money to see them perform tricks, you know, as though that they are put on this planet to entertain us. And, you know, it's the same with, with fishing, even, you know, sport fishing can get really, really out of hand. Um, you know, salmon, you know, we look at the fish farms where we have salmon crammed into these, these very small spaces and bred specifically for our consumption as a commodity. And, you know, Ernest Alfred in the film says, you know, there's no respect here. There's no respect for this other living, green being. And I think that that is kind of the root of this, this disconnect and what we look at. And it goes hand in hand with capitalism. It goes hand in hand with industrialization, colonialization, and this view of us being on top in control Uh, When in reality, we are, you know, equal, we are all part of the same soup, the the same magic. So, um, yeah, I think if we're to pin it down, it's that commoditization kind of idea, I think is a a nice way to simplify it and see it at the root core of our, our disconnect. You, yeah, hit it like a nail on the head. I don't know if that's the right word. But what was super interesting was like even fishing systems and how our food systems play a role in the ecosystem functioning is so cool because like more colonial ways of salmon fishing could be like food farms or putting them in the ocean or I don't actually like know all of the ways, but indigenous food systems actually do it in a way where you get the salmon at the end of their life cycle, which allows you to count actually how many more salmon in the population you're getting so that you're able to conserve and watch how much you're taking. Um, Whereas 
um, more like maybe westernized uh, fishing systems take them at diff- like more um, beginning phases of their life. And so you're not able to understand like what your impact is or how you're negatively impacting those populations over time. So kind of going back to what Gloria said, like listening to Indigenous ways of knowing and actually engaging with those communities is one of the biggest ways that you can kind of manage this disconnect as well. So I think that was like really fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great example. You know, we trawling the ocean, you know, that's the big, just take everything that you can get and sell it. It's so backwards and so unsustainable, of course, and so disconnected. So yeah. End of life fishing. That's something that we looked at as well as a, as a possible solution. Um, yeah. Cause you know, the reality is it's, it, we have, people have fish on coast on the coast, you know, forever. And we should be able to fish. It's just, I think, you know, we need to find ways to do that in a way that's more respectful and less consumption oriented. And, you know, I truly believe that people in central North America shouldn't be eating salmon. Like that's not a native, you know, food. You should not be eating salmon there. Or if you do, it's got to be a really rare treat and you better know where it's coming from. And that goes the same for so many foods that you know, so much of the way that we live. So that kind of consciousness, where is this coming from? Like, what's my relationship to it? I've read a bit about the impact of fish farms on orca populations. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a bit to that and what your observations have been of that impact. Yeah. Fish farms. Um, what ha- it's, it's again, like that interconnected web. You might not see how right off the bat fish farms would impact orcas. Cause you're technically not taking salmon from them. So, you know, it's like, and, and when it, when fish farms were first brought in, it sounded like this great solution. It's like, Hey, we don't have to fish more of the fish we've overfished, but what happens because, you know, it's this, this, um, non-native species put in this environment altogether crammed and like any other farms, it creates diseases and they're in the water. So with the currents, those diseases are spread throughout the ocean and they're right spot on in the salmon migration. So the little salmon, you know, swim past, I forget how many fish farms are in BC, like 300 ish. Um, it's just, so, over, it's actually just over a hundred, hundred and like oh, 25 or hundred. I don't know where yeah, it's still a lot. From. If you look at a map of BC, they're just everywhere. They, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for correcting me. No um, but yeah, they, they swim past these fish farms and then they get either sea lice or this virus. This virus called PRV Pison Rio virus makes the red blood cells in wild Chinook salmon explode. So there you have it. And as for the sea lice on juvenile salmon, on adult salmon, it's, it's okay. But on, on juvenile salmon, on the baby ones, it kills them. It's basically all these sea lice louse on their bodies and they can't survive. So that's how it affects salmon populations. And, um, and again, not just salmon populations, but the orca and indigenous people who depend on that salmon and everything that depends on salmon on the coast. Thank you. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And it's, it seemed, yeah, like you were saying, it seemed like such an easy solution, but it's probably one of those cases where not talking to the indigenous communities and, truly understanding the impacts of your actions. Yeah. Fish farms are, we spent some time speaking with some, um, 
some of the first fish farmers on the West Coast as well, too. And that was a really interesting experience because for them, it was very boutique at the beginning. And I think that that's, a, that's the way that a lot of um, situations like this start is, you know, it's just the, the farms were small. Uh, they weren't farming Atlantic salmon. They were farming native species initially. And then, you know, the money started flowing in and, and next thing you know, they had major investors and Atlantic salmon. And, um, so it kind of, things just got out of, uh, out of hand. They eventually pulled out, but, uh, yeah, it's these big kind of corporate entities that are just so detached. They don't care. They don't care. You know, the people who are investing in this and and in these projects and whatnot, they don't, they don't care. They're not there. Um, they're not living there. What was the biggest challenge of creating this film and what was the biggest reward? There's so many massive challenges in making a documentary film. And we confronted, I think just about every one of them. It started off right away with financing. You know, we were like, okay, let's make a film. We got to raise some money. We had this big concert that we organized in downtown Toronto with this amazing venue, so many epic sponsors. And then like 20 people showed up and we were at a loss of like 500 bucks or whatever. So um, luckily then we launched a Kickstarter after that, but it was that kind of perseverance and that grittiness that um, got us through, I think all the way to where we are now, but even now, you know, we're kind of figuring things out and it's not, you know, people don't, you don't make a documentary film because you want to make money. And so um, you make it because you're passionate and you're emotionally invested. And those elements in themselves are very challenging. Being on the ground and learning about all of this, seeing this stuff firsthand, it's quite, um, it's confronting, it's heart-wrenching, it's challenging in so many, in so many ways. And, and um, but it's also really, really amazing too. So I think in both the reward and the, the both, the, they're, intrinsically connected it's like two sides of the same coin you know you get to learn so much and invest so much and be really really engaged but in that way it's um yeah it's it can be hard so I'm really grateful to just having such an amazing team and having such an incredible community and even just speaking with you know people like yourselves who are engaged and connected it really makes me feel awesome and excited and hopeful. And those are the things that you need, um, I think in, in your life, otherwise, what else do you have? So yeah, kind of got a little high level philosophical there for you, but, <laughs> um, yeah, it's been, it's been very challenging, but very rewarding working on this film. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with that. The financing has been one. And I think the other one, you know, which is in some ways connected to that, but it is the burnouts. It's uh, it's heavy hearted work, and there's an urgency to it. And we've often given or given more than we had in our cups. And yeah, I think that has been the most challenging. And, and again, the other side of that coin has been the community and the people we've met in our team and the absolute like love we have gotten in those challenging moments, you know, being, in moments where you really see the injustice and you know the impact of colonialism on indigenous people that just like you said oh is heart-wrenching and then at the same time you're with a community and you're gonna you're gonna just you're together and and it's just that is is so powerful you know 
And I think that's been the the rewarding aspect is the community that we've built, the people that are family now and the people that we know we're going to fight forever with to, to protect the orcas, the salmon, this coast, the people. And yeah. And on the other end, on the other hand, again, seeing all of it being destroyed, that's the most challenging part seeing, you know, whenever an orca dies, whenever there's a bad news with, you know, the pipeline being built or with people we know being impacted in their personal life because of it. But I was, I was almost going to say a line from the film. I'm not going to do it. But the human spirit, <laughs> we, we know our lines by heart. This is now. what happens. Yeah. When you watch a, you, the film you've made over and over and over and over again. <laughs> I literally had the music playing in my head. <laughs> I was like, but the human spirit, that's what gives me hope. <laughs> <laughs> I first want to say there's nothing I would have loved more than attending that concert. It sounds amazing. If you guys ever decide to do it again, I'll be there in a heartbeat. So <laughs> I love that so much. And I think that would be super awesome. Um, but yeah, I have a final few questions for our listeners. So the first is what's the main thing you hope people take away from the film? Number two is what can people do to help? And number three is how can we all watch it? Because that's what we all want to do. <laughs> okay, the first question was the main, what we want people to take away from it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or is it too soon? No, 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 it's a perfect question. I, there are two things. There's that one of, of that mindset shift, because if there's a mindset shift, then I believe the next thing I'll say, they'll, they'll understand and go for it. So understanding that we are connected to this ecosystem, that we are connected with the actions we take, with everything, just the full interconnectedness. How do we coexist? I hope people take away that. And then the other one is the importance of bold action and of fighting for systemic change, becoming an ally in showing up as an ally. That's the other part of it. Because if we all do this, then I think we can really truly protect and and regenerate this beautiful coast, not just coast, but this entire planet. So that's that's what I hope people take away from and it. Where you can watch it. <laughs> um, we're in a few festivals coming up, uh, and then ultimately, you know, we we're going to be doing screenings across the north, um, across North America, and um, in other places around the world. Uh, we are looking for a distribution right now, so more formalized. Uh, you know, presence and, you know, the way that people usually view films. And that would be through, you know, Amazon or Netflix or whatever one of the big online distributors or platforms are for digital viewing um, and potentially as well theatrical release. But I'd say just hold on tight, follow us online and keep an eye out to see if we're in a festival in your area. So you can watch it there if you want to watch it early. Um, Otherwise, stay tuned. Amazing. We learned so, so, so much from you. And I'm so excited to see the film and see more about these badass creatures because they truly are. And and you guys are a few badass ladies just telling the tale. And I also love to see that. Thank you so much. It was really fun talking Aww. and you're all amazing. And thank you for doing this podcast. It's really, really badass as well. Definitely. <laughs> thank yeah. you so, thank much. You so much. Thank you so thank much. You. This is the best. Thanks, guys. The best. The best. Hi everyone, it's Jackie again, and as you know, we're the youth chapter of the Sierra Club Canada, a national and grassroots nonprofit dedicated to protecting our environment, our communities, and our common futures. 
We are a community-powered show and need your direct support to continue empowering young people to learn more about topics often sidelined by the mainstream media. So if you value our conversations and the guests we learn from, you can reciprocate a gift to us starting at $3 a month through Patreon. You can follow the link in our show notes to contribute and just saying, there might be a few extras in there for our Patreons. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Talk to you next time.